Well, thank you all. Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you all for being here. Uh, this is the uh, second of our panels this term at the uh, Global Governance, LDS Legal Global Governance, as they are called now. And it's about Afghanistan tonight. And uh, we are extremely uh, fortunate in having uh, this uh, panel with us. There is one member of the panel missing, and that is Mr. Dr. David Kilcullen, who at the last minute has not been able to join us. But he will speak to us uh, shortly uh, for a few minutes <coughs> from uh, Washington through this uh, uh, magic technology called the internet. Um, so I think, you know, uh, let me first introduce uh, the members of the, of the panel to you. Um, they, we have uh, uh, two very uh, uh, articulate Afghans uh, who are going to tell us a lot of the things we probably don't know uh, that are happening on the ground in Afghanistan. Wazma uh, Froch. Uh, uh, who is a human rights activist, formerly from Global Justice, a Gender and Development Specialist, and a recipient of the 2009 International Woman of Courage Award. She is also Shevning Scholar in International Development Law and Human Rights at Warwick University. She has been praised, I think, often for her scholarly view of Islam as a religion that embraces also roles for women. And uh, on my left, Horia Mossadegh, who is a journalist and human rights activist also, and a researcher with Amnesty International in Afghanistan. She has been involved with the Human Rights Research and Advocacy Consortium, focusing on Afghanistan and also creating the first war victims network. In 2007, she was awarded the National Human Rights Defenders Prize in Afghanistan for her work. The uh, non-Afghans also know a little bit about Afghanistan. On my right, uh, my former colleague in the United Nations, Michael Semple, but uh, what he has forgotten about Afghanistan, I will never know. <laughs> Uh, I think, I don't know whether we should call you really a non-Afghan. Uh, he is a regional specialist on Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, has been in the region for 25 years, and he currently holds a fellowship with the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. As a political officer of the United Nations, he contributed to the building up of the post-2001 Afghan uh, political order, and from 2004-2007 served as deputy to the European Union Special Representative to Afghanistan. Uh, the younger, uh, at least apparently, uh, of uh, all of us, perhaps not younger than me, is Tom Tugendhat. Forgive me, uh, even uh, some of the English names are difficult to pronounce. 
who has worked in support of the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan since 2005, uh, holding since then the various, various posts as an advisor to the National Security Council, governor of uh, the governor of uh, Helmand, and the district governor of Musaqara. Uh, as a diplomat and later a soldier, he has worked on trying to understand the influences on Afghan, on Afghan society, particularly in the Pashtun areas around Helmand. And he assisted in the extension, he assists, I think he still does, in the extension of the government of Afghanistan to its people. Um, I'll say one or two provocative things so that these younger people uh, know what to react to. Uh, you know, Afghanistan, to say that Afghanistan is in trouble would be an understatement. Uh, I think the problems of Afghanistan are many, they are complicated, but I will single out uh, four of them. Uh, yeah, before saying that, let me say that there is international commitment to Afghanistan, and that's good. And I think it, we are rather fortunate that this commitment has lasted so long. It is the international community is still reasonably committed to, to Afghanistan. They are giving forces, they are giving resources. Whether those resources and those forces are enough, whether they are properly used is perhaps something that we can discuss. Uh, but what we have now is you know, perhaps the master word is that there isn't a consensus in what the problems are and how they are to be solved. There isn't a consensus amongst the Afghans. There isn't a consensus, I will say, amongst the members of NATO who are fighting one war in one country, but sometimes they give the impression of, of, of fighting different wars in the same country. There is no consensus between the Afghans and the, the people who are supporting and, no less important, there is no consensus between the regional, uh, the regional powers around Afghanistan. Those countries that can and do, at times at least, either fan the flames of conflict or, on the contrary, be extremely effective at putting out the fire. These are the, the I think, the, the problems uh, that uh, we hate, we have. Um, the uh, members of the panel will address whatever uh, subject they uh, wish to address amongst the things that I have, the subjects that I have, the issues that I have raised, or other other issues. And we will start with Mr. Kulen if he's if he's available, uh, because you know you don't uh, have this mysterious and magical. You can't trust them all the time, so you better use them while they are there. Uh, Mr. Kirkulan, welcome, and thank you very much for uh, accepting to talk to us. We, we are sorry that you are not with us, and look forward to listening to your comments. Well, uh, thank you, and I am delighted to be here uh, virtually. I'm sorry that I, I can't be here in person. Um, we've had a death in the family here in the last uh, 10 days or so, and I've had to cancel my uh, plan to Europe. Uh, I understand that this effort's actually helping LSD to pioneer some new technologies. 
So hopefully uh, it'll be of some long-term help. And I want to particularly thank uh, Jared Barnes for putting us all together and um, Prometheus-like effective uh, link-up today. Um, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the next 12 to 18 months in Afghanistan uh, based on my own experience of working on Afghan issues since 2001 and working in Afghanistan on and off since late 2005. Um, and also, perhaps more importantly for this panel, from the academic perspective of insurgency studies, that is a sort of large-end perspective on what, in broad sweep of history, it typically takes to win uh, in this type of environment. Now, the problem in Afghanistan is not classical counterinsurgency. Uh, it is that, but it's also much broader psychology. Uh, and the way I think about it is that it starts with the process of corruption and criminality, both by some members of the Afghan government, uh, members of Afghan civil society elites, uh, within the international assistance effort uh, in particular, uh, and generally in the environment created by conflict, what you might call the war economy. And that corruption and criminality incentivizes and creates conditions for bad behavior of the Afghan government uh, and uh, local elites. And I don't mean bad governance, I mean bad behaviour. I'm talking about corruption, uh, exploitation, uh, human rights abuses, uh, capricious application of uh, the rule of law, uh, and a variety of other just abuse exploited behaviour. Um, that bad behaviour creates popular rage and discontent. The population becomes disillusioned with the effort. Uh, the government is discredited in their own. They don't believe the international community can deliver on its promises and become extremely vulnerable to intimidation uh, propaganda from uh, Taliban. And so that rage and discontent actually empowers Taliban insurgency. And the fact that the insurgency is now affecting about two-thirds of the country again creates the environment that allows the corruption and criminality to flourish. So it's a cycle of criminality driving bad behaviour, uh, creating popular rage, which empowers the insurgents and creates the environment for more corruption and bad behaviour. So it's a cycle. Uh, and counterinsurgency is important in dealing with part of that cycle, but it's not the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing, of course, is governance reform and countering corruption uh, and remedying the human rights abuses that are actually creating a lot of the drivers of conflict uh, in the country, and in particular establishing the rule of law. And no amount of military success against the Taliban will be enough if Afghans, supported by the international community, don't uh, deliver on those critical aspects of the effort, non-military aspects. Now, the good news is that on the military front, things are actually starting to improve. And I know that's a little hard to believe sitting here in London or in Washington where I am, but I, I do think that the, the military effort, uh, certainly what I've seen on the ground in the last months, is starting to, uh, if you like, bottom out the security situation. It's stopped getting worse. It may indeed start to improve uh, some key parts of the country uh, in the next 12 to 18 months. This is partly just because we have a lot more resources now. We finally have enough troops to secure some critical parts of the country. Uh, there's a surge of civilian experts. Uh, I know the UK has put in a lot of 
experts catered press. We've gone from about 350 last September, just sort of a thousand now. Um, and for money, what's around? Now, of course, that also creates incentives to corruption and problems in administrations. So it's not a unaligned, but we do at least have the ability now to start delivering some progress on the military front. Uh, I guess most prominent thing that happened in the last few weeks has been the capture of a substantial number of members of the Taliban in Pakistan, which, while it's a good thing, doesn't necessarily indicate that the insurgency is on its last legs, and it doesn't necessarily indicate a change in the Pakistani attitude to the insurgency. I think it's too early to tell on those aspects, but it's certainly a positive sign. I think we've also seen, particularly the uh, offensive just finished Marge Helmand, a significant improvement in the performance of the Afghan National Army, which I think is another important uh, positive sign. The bad news, of course, is we're seeing very little prospects so far of translating any security improvement that might occur uh, into political progress or the improvements in governance and human rights that are actually critical. Uh, and I also think we still have a huge amount of work to do on the Afghan police, Afghan civil officials, and just generally uh, capacity building from the ministerial level right down to the village level. So there's a huge amount to do. Step back a little bit from Afghanistan itself to give you a bit of a large end perspective uh, from the standpoint of counterinsurgency studies. Um, insurgency is the most widespread conflict uh, both today in the world and in the history of warfare. Uh, and indeed, although most armies persist in regarding guerrilla warfare as uh, irregular or non-conventional, the fact is it's occurred in one form or another in almost all societies. There's a database here in the United States called the Correlates of War Project, which has been maintained continuously since 1963 and has tracked all conflicts worldwide since the and that database identifies 464 conflicts worldwide since 1816, of which only 79, which is about 17%, were conventional in the sense that we choose out as normal. Uh, while about 308, so about 83% of recorded conflicts were civil wars or insurgents, it's a common conflict. Now, importantly, most of these conflicts, around 80% of them, were won by the government. Insurgents usually lose. So on the face of it, when you get into a counterinsurgency, it might seem as if the government's chances of success are actually very high. But you get a very different picture when you look at the big um, sort of large-end perspective. If you control for two very important factors. Firstly, the willingness to negotiate politically with an insurgency. And secondly, whether or not you're operating your own country Governments that are fighting a domestic insurgency are willing to address the grievances that drive the insurgency uh, and to negotiate in good faith on a political solution have an extremely good historical record uh, of success in a counterinsurgency. Governments that aren't willing to negotiate and are fighting in somebody else's country almost always lose. Uh, and if you're in sort of 50-50 category, you're domestic but you won't negotiate overseas and you will negotiate, uh, you're in, in a, about 50 chance of, of success. Uh, so I just would guess that what that tells us is that it's very important that we that's going to be by
uh, modest improvement in security conditions to do two really important things. Firstly, reform the Afghan government and the international assistance effort so as to remove some of the critical drivers of the conflict on the ground. And secondly, we need to begin an Afghan-led process of negotiation and reconciliation with key elements in the Taliban movement. We probably don't have time to go into how diverse and uh, factionated the Taliban is, but I'm sure the other members of the panel will be able to address that in a little detail. I am not necessarily talking about uh, negotiating a surrender of the Afghan government to the senior Taliban leadership. I don't think anybody's talking about that. What I'm talking about is reconciling with everybody who proves to be reconciled uh, and negotiating a solution that would be familiar to the English audience uh, in terms of the sort of thing that we saw at the end of the war in Northern Ireland, if indeed you believe it's over, the Friday where the insurgents agreed to put the weapon down and rejoin the political process in return for a seat at the table. And again, if you look at the large end perspective, that seems to be the outline of successful uh, negotiations that ended in certainty. Um, if indeed we persist in our current approach, making it basically a military effort, trying to destroy the Taliban uh, and being unwilling to negotiate, I think a chance of success focusing on extending reach of the Afghan government rather than reforming that government to become a government that people can respect uh, and the Afghan people uh, have some belief in, uh, then I think our success rate will be uh, even lower. Uh, I would also just end by saying I don't suggest that we want to start negotiating immediately. Um, for, for a start, half the Quetta Shura Taliban leadership are currently in jail. Uh, but I think we also want, what we want to do is to uh, begin a process of pushing them back until they start to see negotiating as a better alternative than continuing to fight. Um, and I think part of that, a very important one that is to be played by Afghan civil society. Uh, and I think issues like the Community Defense Initiative, or the Local Defense Initiative, uh, the events happening with EDC, Community Defense Councils, and the National Solidarity Program, uh, and the formation of a number of groups across the country to fight the Taliban at the local level, uh, show us that Afghans, ordinary Afghans, uh, not part of the Afghan government, uh, have an important role to play in determining the future of their society. Uh, I'm going to stop there and hand back to the chair. Thank you very, very much indeed. I'm sorry, you know, my suspicion of technology has been proved right. Uh, I, I apologize to Dr. Kirkullen and to all of you that uh, uh, the sound was not as good as we would have liked it to be. Uh, uh, Talking that, uh, uh, I think, works on the same issues of strategy, uh, military and civilian. And perhaps we'd like to complete uh, what uh, Dr. Kirkunen has told us. Uh, Minister, you, you, you flatter me that I, I'm in any way capable of completing uh, the works of somebody who's written so much more than I, I ever will. Um, I was, asked to, uh, I was asked to come and speak about the political-military interface, effectively, and the nexus of that work. And the reason that I will focus on that is because that is where my own uh, experience lies. Uh, I dread to call it an expertise, but certainly experience. And it's um, an area that I've worked on now for five or six years. Uh, I think the, the main 
point that I'd, well, before I start, actually, I'd like to make it absolutely clear I'm speaking on my own behalf here and not on behalf of Her Majesty's Government or the British Army. The experiences I, I'm going to talk about come from uh, working on the ground, which, of which only a year of which was in uh, Kabul. The other three years were in Helmand uh, in the capacity as a, either a diplomat or a soldier. And I think that uh, the points that Dr. Kilcullen would bring forward were those that I experienced myself, which is that the importance in bringing a change come down to the importance of civil military cooperation, the unity of command, the support for indigenous structures, and, as they say, winning the population, or at least focusing on the population, gaining support of the population. There's any number of different expressions for what is effectively the same thing. Now, before we go into details of it, I'd, I'd like to also say that I'm relatively encouraged at the moment. Uh, I think we've got a positive story to tell. I don't mean us, the UK. I mean us, ISAF. I mean us, uh, the international community, and in particular, the Afghan government. Through the work they put in, and we've supported in uh, training and equipping and planning operations with the Afghan National Security Forces, whether police or uh, ANA, we've seen a marked improvement in their operations on the ground, of which Obmoshtarek, the most recent one, is a, a rather good example. We've seen the, what they call them a crystal effect, if you like, the, uh, the focus on, on those points uh, has uh, been embedded rather more significantly into the thought processes of not only uh, the Americans, but actually uh, all the other ISAF nations. And we've seen uh, the London conference ending up with various points, including the uh, agreement to increase the total number of uh, Afghan national security forces to over 300,000, which will see uh, the exit strategy for us. Now, just to illustrate that a little bit, I'd just like to talk about one operation that I was involved in, which was uh, an operation that retook a town called Musikala in uh, Northern Helmand in 2007. And uh, on the day that uh, the British Embassy had its Christmas ball, I uh, sadly found myself in the middle of a desert waiting uh, for the town to fall and for us to go in. And the Afghan army, in fact, took the town, which was an important uh, first step because it was an Afghan-delivered operation, supported by ISAF. And within not even 24 hours, within 10 minutes, a military security stabilization team came in and began to do exactly what David Kilcullen there was talking about, is that uh, beginning to deliver the initial effects of the outreach of governance. Now, it's important to stress that the, uh, the governance we're talking about here is the very basic representation of the people to the state. It is the very initial stages of dispute resolution and the very initial stages of balancing of the goods that the government may or may not bring. And at that point, that is effectively what we're talking about for governance. Now, you can go, of course, and start talking about the higher level to Kabul and indeed the regional players, but as that was never the field in which I operated, I will keep myself in the area where I'm more comfortable. The, uh, the point is that when you get into that stage, quite a lot of focus is put on whether it's civilian or military work. And I think it's worth stressing that 
despite the fact that I may wear a uniform at other times and, and not right now, the view that uh, the people of Afghanistan have of me, particularly in the villages, is not affected by the uniform I wear or don't wear. To them, in the villages outlying, particularly in Helmand, but also all around the Pashtun Belt, I'm just another foreigner. And whether I wear uniform or not makes no difference at all. So I'm very clear, as far as I'm concerned, what matters is the effect, the effect of what I bring, whether that be outreach to the government authorities, whether that be uh, civil aid, whether that be uh, the ability, the recourse to justice, then that is the main <coughs> tool that I have at my disposal. The military aspect, by which I mean the weapons, the soldiers, are merely facilitators for that. The weapons are only there to defend and the soldiers are only there to bring out, to bring the outreach. So the first thing for us is always uh, the rolling out of security at the basic level, governance at the basic level, development at the basic level, and with any luck that gets into a loop that then starts feeding on itself and spiraling upwards. And I would argue that's what's happened in Mushtarak, which is why for me the most important thing of Mushtarak happened two days ago, uh, which was sadly very only slightly reported, only very slightly reported in the press, which was the arrival of Hamid Karzai in Marja. And that demonstration that the government is there to serve the people, not the people to serve the government, was a very important moment. Thank you very much. Can I ask you, uh, what is the situation in Musakala now? Uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm out of date. I've, I've been a staff officer now for... The Taliban haven't retaken it. The Taliban have not retaken it. Sorry. Uh, because, you know, I, I heard that one of your colleagues uh, in Helmand went to a village and asked the people there, said, you know, you had three things to ask, what would they be? They said, we know very well what those three things should be. One, that the Taliban go away and not come back. Uh, that the Taliban go away. Two, that you go away. And three, that neither of you comes back. <laughs> um, uh, Michael, one thing you know that has been spoken about, but uh, uh, perhaps not sufficiently, even I failed to mention it as one of the main problems. The insurgency has proved uh, yeah, perhaps successful, certainly resilient, and it's not going to go away. Uh, how are we going to have that strategy that is going to solve the problems that uh, Afghanistan has been suffering from for the last 30 years? Michael? <laughs> well, um, yeah, talk about something else if you don't like the question. Yeah, I, yeah, it's the kind of thing I'd like to, um, you know, relax, sort of sit down and talk for the rest of the evening. I gather it's just not yeah. one of those occasions. Everybody has all the time in the world, so yeah. Yeah. Um, as long as you finish in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons why it is difficult to build the consensus that that strategy needs uh, is a problem which is best thought of as the gap between ideals and reality and yeah, it's that uh, that gap cuts through every aspect of the intervention which is going on 
And it's a gap which is a cause for concern and also perhaps even a slight cause for hope. Because it's this gap between <coughs> idealism and reality which means that sometimes that people on different sides of the conflict actually think they're standing for the same thing, but are mobilizing their constituencies to fight against each other. And if we can find some way of cutting across the cross-purposes which exist, driven by that gap, we may actually be able to move to a stage of conflict resolution, which is um, you know, essential if we were to have a workable strategy to get out um, of the 30-year uh, the problem. The, the, the way this idealism-reality gap works is, of course, that Tom described to us the, um, the process whereby two days ago, Hamid Karzai was flown into, into Marja, and this was like this was you know, the success of Operation Mustarik. This is absolutely um, extending the Afghan government. Because, we, of course, we think of Hamid Karzai as a symbol of you know, the ideals behind the bomb process. Because the bomb process was also going to um, bring an end to the, the conflict of a generation, uh, put new political institutions on a lasting footing in Afghanistan, and provide an opportunity for all Afghans to go beyond their civil war and participate in them. And so Hamid Karzai is a, sort of a, uh, is a symbol of all of that and of, you know, of human rights and democracy and all those great things. And that's why we're backing you know, the continuation of the bomb process in the Afghan government. But of course, those people who are mobilizing young Afghans to go out and sacrifice themselves, to risk getting themselves killed and also to kill, kill others, of course, they're not actually um, fighting against the stated, the stated goals or the ideals behind the bomb process. Um, they, you know, they are, of course, mobilizing for a just Afghanistan, and they are mobilizing, of course, for an Islamic Afghanistan, and they're mobilizing against corruption. Uh, they're against an alien idea of democracy. They're operating across purposes. And, of course, as long as they continue to mobilize young Afghans for that cause, um, they will sell Hamid Karzai as a, you know, as a symbol of corrupt puppet government. We're at complete cross purposes. So part of the way forward, part of the way of building up, uh, building up a consensus around a, strat a strategy for a new stage in Afghanistan is going to be cutting across this idealism reality gap and working out when push comes to shove what really, really divides the sides and to see where there's a possibility for cutting people into a new political deal as David Kalkalan was pointing out, <coughs> was pointing towards. Because, of course, if we're thinking about what's meant to be driving the intervention, about this time last year, there was a lot of talk about you know, confused mission, where we're no longer sure what it was all about in Afghanistan. I remember that debate we had about this this time last year. And I mean, supposedly, it's been clarified from the American side, where you know, the set of statements starting from around about this time last year came said, of course, you know, forget about the rest. It's about Al-Qaeda, remember? That they, the intervention in Afghanistan uh, is to remove a threat to international security which is posed by the presence of Al-Qaeda and its ability to use Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, for international terrorism. And all we're doing is putting an end to that. And that was supposedly, this led to the clarification of mission. And it left, of course, a lot of people sort of feeling uncomfortable, though we had the statements, yes, the mission is clarified. Because there was a sense, that, uh, particularly you know, of Afghans that many of us worked with and of internationals who were involved in the early stage of the bond process, that yes, we know that the legal, the legal basis of intervention related to that. But of course, it was about so much more. Because the, the, uh, the idea of 
stabilizing Afghanistan, of uh, enabling Afghans to uh, build sustainable political institutions which would uh, you know, help to resolve the conflict in their country, that it wasn't just an add-on, it was a fundamental part of the process. Uh, but of course, we have been told over the past year that, yeah, but, but not important, that we only deploy troops you know, when there's another kind of reason, like uh, ending Al-Qaeda. I think that the, the reality is that these are inextricable, and however it's necessary to make the case that, of course, it goes back to the original intervention, the original reason for invoking Chapter 7 of the, the UN Charter, that no solution in Afghanistan, which is bad for the Afghan people, will stick or will be presentable as a success. Even if we were to get to a situation where, after you know, a couple of years, it were possible to run down the international military presence, declare that Al-Qaeda is, no is no longer presence, and leave an Afghanistan which was vulnerable to or immersed in a civil war, but a civil war which Al-Qaeda didn't play a role in. It could not be sold as a success because it would, be, it would be bounced back to all those people who were involved in the international inter intervention, particularly the United States, but everybody else who was being involved, saying that you know, the outcome of a decade of promises and commitments and sacrifices is leaving a country just as bad as where you went in. Uh, and it would simply be untenable, unsustainable. First of all, of course, it would be disastrous for the Afghan people, but it would become politically damaging for anybody on the international side who had been associated with that mission. So that even if there are formal legal arguments that about the, uh, the imperative of removing Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, Pakistan, ultimately it comes back to what's good for the Afghan people and how can Afghanistan be stabilized to escape, to escape from this, this problem of how to keep the country together. Why are we worried at the moment that they, you gave us the, you sort of summarized it in terms of the, the, the lack of a consensus of how to go forward. But the reality is that there is, there is a long, there is a long list uh, of things. I would have summed up why we're, why we're worried. Because after almost a decade of intervention, a decade which really was about putting Afghanistan back on its feet so there would be sustainable, enduring political institutions that would be able to run the country, provide Afghans a, a way of relating to each other and you know, living peacefully inside the same national framework. That everybody who's been working in it and is able to see beyond the fairy stories, see beyond the gap of uh, idealism and reality, that those sustainable institutions do not yet exist. And that there is a, a deep concern that if the international intervention, as it exists now, were run down abruptly, that it wouldn't survive. You'd get something like the decent interval that the Soviets had after they pulled out in 1989, uh, and a movement, if not to a Taliban and insurgent actual takeover, an escalation of conflict, contest over territory, and yeah, obviously the civil war continues. And that's, what, that's broadly why uh, people are worried. But if you were to look in detail into, the, into the, the issues of why people are concerned, corruption, as uh, David Kilcullen rightly, rightly brought up, uh, 
probably the word in the English language doesn't adequately convey what people are worried in this kind of category. Multiple forms of rent-seeking behaviour, that they've all sorts of forms of behaviour, some of which David Kilcullen rightly pointed to, um, which essentially alienate the population uh, from the government at a time when the whole strategy depends upon pushing the other direction, bringing the two together. Ideas of democracy, that they, you know, we, we all know what's happened over the past few months, that like it or not, the democracy was built into the, was built into the formula in Bonn, um, but uh, it has turned out to be delegitimizing rather than legitimizing. That they, uh, many people thought that democracy was necessary to, as providing a way for the, the, the different groups inside Afghan society to relate to each other, but of course democracy has not worked the way that some people anticipated. They, the institutions do not operate in the way that they, uh, um, that they were intended or often are portrayed. Some people have been writing about imaginary institutions. Again, there's a massive gap between the, the ideals with which institutions were set up and the reality of how they perform and how they uh, relate to the population. Even institutions as fundamental to the process, like the Afghan National Army and the police, which uh, you know, Tom pointed to as you know, the hope for the exit strategy. We come up with figures about the number of recruits to the Afghan army, but then we have to look at how they're perceived by population and also by the, uh, by the insurgency. The Afghan national, Afghan national army was supposed to be a national institution that those people who are mobilizing against it, of course, portray it as being a civil war organization, something which is dominated by the, the symbolism of the civil war, basically dominated by the, the Tajiks and other minority groups. Um, so this is, why, this is why we're all worried. The response to that is basically this fork in the road. Either the way forward is broadly continuing the, the way that the Afghan government and the international community have been working, which is basically continuing to do the kind of things that Tom has been uh, talking about, tweaking about with the performance of the administration, improving the size and performance of the Afghan national security forces, pouring in more money, and hoping that they actually will be able to stand up and you will withdraw international forces, continue economic assistance, and you know, hopefully some of the sting will go out of the conflict. That's one of the clear options. The other broad option in this fork in the road is some kind of new political deal. David Kilcullen was pointing to the idea of something looking a little bit like the Belfast Agreement, not a capitulation where the, uh, the Afghan government hands over to the Taliban, but a deal where the Taliban win themselves a, a seat at the table, are incorporated into the political order in a way that they weren't incorporated in 2001, and in return for that, that they use their moral authority, instead of telling young Afghans to fight against the system, actually to endorse the system and participate it in the many ways which we worked out during the agreement. And ultimately, the, the case that there should be some kind of political accommodation is not a give up in despair and move away, but to increase the, uh, the likelihood of some kind of success in, fun in this fundamental problem about how to es help Afghans escape from the 30 years of conflict. Um, I suspect that I will get a chance to come back to some of these issues, but I wouldn't want to stray too far off my 10 minutes. Thank you very, very much indeed, Michael. Um, our, our two Afghan uh, colleagues here have been in Afghanistan very recently, 
And uh, I think you, Wasma, has uh, both I think, have traveled. They haven't been only in Kabul, but they have traveled in the country. Tell he us lived in, there. Uh, <laughs> tell, yeah, tell us a little bit of what you have seen recently and what you have heard from uh, from the Afghans. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I think I'm not a politician nor an intellectual, so whatever I, I'm trying to say this evening would be some of the concerns and some of the issues that the Afghans are actually trying to say that you hardly hear from the politicians or the, the government officials who everybody has a stake in this ongoing war. So um, I think I would start with the current situation and taking from where Semple said that we are worried actually. We have to be worried because whatever the international community tells us in Afghanistan and what they tell their own constituencies and people outside Afghanistan is very different. It's very, it's, it's very different because they have to accommodate both interests. So I would start with the current situation that I think every discussion on Afghanistan is very important, but this discussion or the current time is very important. Why? Because this deadline that the international community, particularly the very, uh, the, the leading nation or the leading administration, which is the US, that is taking uh, um, very seriously, which I did not see that much in Afghanistan, that our politicians actually still think that US or the, its allies have another 10 or 20 years in Afghanistan, is that that is not true. So this deadline has to be taken seriously. By the, by the Afghan government and even by the ones who are supporting the, um, the Afghan cause. And um, this whole, um, we have been hearing, like I was also in, in a conference in Vienna where um, Ambassador Eikenberry and many others spoke, and they said that there is so much talking about this transition of responsibility, where the Afghans are able to actually to take the lead. The Afghans are um, able to, to take the lead for the security of their nation. Which, of course, we Afghans see it also at the same time. We, we doubt that because of the current situation. If, for example, if a government, if government vehicles are hijacked for the, for the bombing of civilians or civilian places, then how can you even trust that, the, that this government is really actually going to, to provide me with security? But then the Afghan communities or Afghans also know that this is not only the government of Afghanistan that's there, but the 40 countries or more than that have, are staying in Afghanistan and have a lot at stake. About Afghanistan, and Afghanistan which is much bigger than Helmand and much larger than Marja, what you know, the, the other issues that we hear in Afghanistan, and recently, um, as I was talking earlier with uh, Mr. Brahimi, the, um, the, in, in January when I had a, well, I was talking with a, with a group of young people in Bamiyan, there's a lot of frustration. That frustration is much more serious than the frustration of the public that you hear in the UK or even in the US who want their taxpaying money uh, to, to be spent better or at least to be spent for their own causes. But that frustration is actually a frustration for going towards a, a civil war. The youth that uh, some of the quotes that, um, that they were saying was that we have been actually deprived. In the past few years, the whole focus of development and also bringing peace has been on site. It has been very much on the uh, insurgency areas. So what are the rewards? What are the, in the um, sort of the, the magnets of motivation for us that we didn't grow opium, we didn't actually took arms, and we supported this government? What are the incentives for us? So while 
this reintegration plan, which you hear a lot about it in here, outside Afghanistan, but you don't hardly. In Afghanistan, we only know about the reintegration plan from the, the news that, that is actually broadcasted by the international um, uh, media. It's, it's, the Afghans do not get a lot of information on what is really happening. So if this reintegration plan is actually premised on this idea that this gives an escape goat or a sort of an exit strategy for the international community, then let's not agree that this is really an Afghan solution. Is that an Afghan solution if it's really a, actually serving the purpose of an exit strategy? But let's see. Try to, for, for example, we are also tired of the ongoing violence. We are also tired of the, the current situation, the blame game. The, we are corrupt, actually. We say, no, you are corrupt because you give us the money. And then <laughs> this, this blame game we really want to want it to get an end. So let's assume that, yes, this reintegration plan is a plan that is actually taking us forward, that will take us to, to, to stop the current violence. But what are the, what are the um, guarantees? not guarantees in, in its very Western notions, but at least we have to see the precedence. Mr. Ibrahim is here in 2001, when the Bonn Agreement was uh, one of the, uh, we, we thought that the Bonn Agreement is actually going to bring us peace, a relative security, but no, it didn't brought. Why? Because of the, the integration of the ones who actually killed the Afghans. I, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to say human rights violation because it's, it has become such a buzzword that we forget the essence. The people who killed us, the people who raped women, they, they became part of the government. So in, in simple, I would like to say that actually Bonn was not based on a democracy, based on an, on a, even on a notions of democracy because we Afghans, we had thought that democracy also has justice with it, but it didn't bring us justice. Democracy is not about elections. It's not only a package. So what is happening? This reintegration plan, the current. If this, is, this reintegration plan is going to give us any sort of hopes that the violence is going to end, we also need to know that this, the culture of impunity is going to an end. I, I think the, we should mark this day and this word that I'm saying that based on what I see in Afghanistan that if we are internalizing impunity in Afghanistan, every Afghan will turn into a suicide bomber. We have been really internalizing impunity. When in all these years we thought, okay, maybe one action plan of transitional justice will help us. But then who do you actually think that they would, they would be able to, to help give, give us justice? The past nine years, the money that came to Afghanistan, th this money didn't reach to the common people. Why? Because you have so much on the, the middle men. In, in between, and who are these people actually? The private security companies, the, uh, the, the, the uh, contractors, the development contractors. That, so, so the money that, that we, we are actually taking the burden, in my university, young uh, British um, uh, asked me that our soldiers are dying in your country. And, and, they, and they want us, and we feel actually it's also not very un-Afghan that I can't accept that at time because I, I tell them that first you didn't come to save me. If you had come to save me, you should have come in 1989. But you didn't come to save me. And on the other hand, the money that you sent, that, was, that didn't come to the people of Afghanistan. The, the, this warlord term that, that you all you usually hear, they have been part of the government structure as Bonn actually created that platform for them. I don't think Bonn created the platform for it. The war on terror created the platform for them to come back and power. And today, they are much more powerful than they used to be. 
because they have the, all the security companies that, that you see in Kabul that are taking the security of the international organizations. You have the, uh, they, they are the ones who have NGOs. At the same time, they are the ones whose houses are being rented by the international community with $20,000 a month, some of them. So the, um, I know that this is a very like uh, dark picture of Afghanistan, but it, it is, uh, it's important to understand that we do not learn from history. If the past years, if, if all the efforts did not give us any sort of a hope that, yeah, things would change, then how is this current situation going to give us any hope that things are going to change? This reintegration plan, if, it is, if it's really going to give us any sort of hope, that, that we need to see that. There are many questions that, that, uh, that needs to be addressed. What is the premise of this integration plan? The incentives that are going to be provided to the ones to renounce violence, what are the incentives to, to, for the ones who actually was, was not part of the violence? And Afghanistan, which is much bigger than, than the South. That is very important. And, and at the same time, when you have warlords who are not, who are not part of the current insurgency, but they have very uh, big stake in this current uh, structure. So I think this time for the, was very important for the Kabul conference yesterday. The time was announced uh, for the Kabul conference. 1,200 people are coming from various parts of, of the country. This is a very important time for us that the, the Avon government, I think the, there has to be a national cons uh, consensus among us and, and our government has to sort of uh, give us that, that sort of a trust. But, but where the role of international community also comes in is that for, for them is that their strategies did not feed us, nor their strategies actually stopped the violence, or nor it gave, brought any sort of justice to, to the current situation. So from, for, from them, their role would also be to continue to actually support this government of Afghanistan, but in, with the current in, uh, the initiative, but with the red lines. We have to understand that what are the red lines from the Afghan government and also from the, the, the militants. Because it's hard to understand who are we actually going to reintegrate. There were people in, uh, in, in Bamiyan that told me that they should integrate us because we feel so deprived. So who are we actually going to reintegrate? The criminal gangs, the, the people who come from the ISI, who, who is it? If, if we are not able to even distinguish who are they, that we are not able to fight with them, how are we going to reintegrate them? This in no means means that we are opposing, from a, for example, from an Afghan perspective, I as somebody as an Afghan, but I want to know these, these nitty gritties. And, and it's, it's strange that my government is not able to tell me those in my consent or usually tells about it to us. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I think these are very, very legitimate uh, concerns. I'm sure there are answers uh, to them. Uh, Horia, if you feel like criticizing Bond, don't be embarrassed. Just go ahead. And <laughs> yeah, I think uh, if you ask every single Afghan, you're absolutely embarrassed, not only on the Bond process, but what's currently continuing in my country. So, uh, yeah, I think. Uh, much of what I wanted to raise was uh, raised by uh, my friend Wajma, but Estelle, I want to share with you. I just returned from Afghanistan like five days ago, and I, I was traveling around, and I talked to a lot of Afghans, including parliamentarians, ordinary Afghans, displaced people, uh, 
politicians, civil society members, human rights organizations. About this reconciliation or reintegration policy, honestly, no one heard that and no one read that because that strategy is written in English. And yeah, how many Afghans can really read English and know that strategy, first thing? Second, these Afghans are asking this question that when the Afghan government want to reconcile, first of all, they didn't consult with the parliament, with the civil society groups, with the human rights group, and of course, there haven't been any sort of referendum with the Afghans themselves in the ground. So I, what, what I was told that it was just a few people, maybe less than 10, who sat together and who designed that strategy for the reconciliation. I think the bigger concern that people are having is not for reintegration of the Taliban or not for bringing peace or security to Afghanistan. I'm sure every single human being is tired of continuous three decades of the conflict and bloodshed in the country and massive human rights violations that are happening in Afghanistan since 1978. And it's not a joke and it's not a short time. But at the same time, people are asking that when you want to reconcile, who do you want to reconcile with? Afghan government is saying that and of course, as Wajma rightly said, that it's not really a reconciliation strategy. It's much more like a exit strategy for the international forces because it's cheap, it's costless, and it's quick. Uh, but what's really like the bigger concern of many Afghans is that for the past nine years, we have been seeing that it's not only a poor Afghan farmer who picked up a Kalashnikov and want to fight the Afghan government. <coughs> the issue of insurgency in Afghanistan even goes broader than what many people believe. And at the same time, when they talk about reconciliation, people are asking, it's not what I say. This is what people were sharing with me, that who do they really want to reconcile with? With those 90% of the suicide bombers who are mainly Pakistanis and blowing themselves up in the cities of Afghanistan and killing tens of Afghans civilians? Or do we talk about reconciliation with the people who simply cut fingers of the people who are going to vote? It's not only a concern with the people in the north or in the central parts of Afghanistan. I think in 2001, many Pashtuns has also supported the overthrow of the Taliban and the welcomed, like Karzai himself is a Pashtun and he's coming from Kandahar. So they have supported his government. They are also in greater concern about their own fate, what will happen. And second issue that we as Afghans have experienced for the past 30 years, but at least since I remember myself, I'm just talking about the late 90s, when Benin Sewan, the UN Special Envoy for Afghanistan, went through similar peace deal for bringing peace to Afghanistan and power share with the Mujahideen and communist groups. It simply didn't work. It led us to a civil war, and we have all seen what happened. Again in 2001, which uh, Mr. Brahimi and uh, 
uh, Michael were also part of that process. Uh, again, it, it really didn't help to end the violence. Of course, there wasn't a stop, but every time when there is something, like we have seen after particularly 2005 parliamentary elections, it has a rapid increase in the number of the insecurity and insurgency in Afghanistan, simply because Taliban went back to the people and saying that, hey, look, the same guys who killed and raped and destroyed the cities, they are back in power, they are back in the parliament. We can't have worse examples of Sayyaf. We can't have worse examples of Dostum. We can't have worse examples of Rabani or even like some communists took that advantage and they became like Ulumi is now part of the parliament, like uh, some of the others of those communist officials are part of the parliament. So this has created, like of course people then see this as an opportunity how they can take back like at least a step, a step back from the government, which instead of supporting the Afghans, instead of standing with the Afghans, it actually violates the rights of Afghans or simply bringing those perpetrators and empowering them. This is how the people of Afghanistan see. And now we are like facing another phase which Obama sets a deadline for the exit of their forces from Afghanistan and international forces want to leave the country. Of course, no one will care what will happen after that. Someone will say that, oh yeah, there will be a genocide, but Afghans will sort that out. I was shocked to hear such a comment from someone who is Western, who is European, and who grown up in a country where human rights are such a big value. And this is what you hear from many Afghans that, first of all, when they want to reconcile, who do they really want to reconcile? With Haqqani group? With Baitullah Masood? With, I don't know, Mullah Fazlul Rahman or with the Mullah Omar? With whom? Who do you want to first reconcile? And second, when they talk about reintegration of the foot soldiers of the Taliban, there is already a commission called National Solidarity Commission led by Sibratullah Mujadidi since 2003 or 2004. And this is for the reintegration of the foot soldiers of the Taliban who are signing a document after receiving some sort of financial support by saying that I will not fight against Afghan government and its international alliances. And some have signed similar documents a few times. <laughs> So, and Karzai constantly calls that I want to talk with Mullah Omar. If we wanted to bring Mullah Omar back to power, why default him at the first hand in 2001? This is what many Afghans are really confused. And many times when you talk to the people, even in the south, even in the north, like, I was in Kunduz, where is the most unrest area in the north. And I was investigating on those German bombing there in October. And when I talked to some of those 
the, those villages are mainly Pashtun area. And when I talk to these people that, okay, you talk about the Taliban, you complain about all this, why you simply allow them to come back? They're saying, we are powerless. If from one hand, the Afghan government and its international alliances are saying that we want to negotiate with the Taliban. And from the other hand, do you want to fight with the Taliban? We don't want to fight in two fronts at the same time. This is all because of the mixed messages that you're getting, and it put people absolutely in a big chaos condition. And this is how many people find themselves absolutely powerless. How do you want to even think about their own life, about their future? I think what we are really lacking in Afghanistan, there is not like a very complicated situation when your leaders are telling you. It's not. Simply empower the rule of law. Hold Afghan government accountable for its performances. The international community is providing more than 80% of the Afghanistan development funding. How they are not able to force the government to get rid of at least some of those worst people with the worst human rights records? And second, what is really important is that deliver to the people what have been promised to them in 2001. Human rights of Afghans, where are the human rights of Afghans? Where is the development? Where is the many other promises that were made to the Afghans? I'm not talking about women's rights, because it's at the bottom of the agenda anyway. Yeah, and uh, I, I just want to finish that, you know, there is not a magician or there, there is not a magic. What you really need your governments to hold Afghan government accountable for the benchmarks that they are setting, there is no any sort of accountability. When they talk about fighting with the corruption and at the same time supporting a corrupt government, doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I will be open to questions. I don't want to take much of your time. Well, thank you very, very much. There are, uh, there are answers to them. Uh, I think if we had about two hours, I would defend Bond, but as we don't have two hours, I will not try to. Uh, you know, we have, unfortunately, only 15 minutes. Let's take uh, uh, three or four questions, uh, starting with the lady out there. Uh, short. Thank you all very Please. much. Thank for your you. time this evening. Um, I'd like to go right back to the Who Amnesty. Are Who are you? I'm Rachel Grimes. It's a very good question. I spent six months in Afghanistan with the British Army. Um, the reason why perhaps you think that we're only interested in the South is because all our soldiers are being killed in the South. If you were with the Germans, you'd just be talking about Northern Afghanistan, or if you were with a Dutch audience, you'd just be talking about Erzgan. So I don't, and I also, I'm answering lots of things here, it's just coming out of me. I don't believe that the uh, reconciliation program that was um, 
advertised, published by President Karzai, is only written in Dari and Pashto. I'm oh, sorry, it's only written in English. I'm pretty sure that if we were to go and do some research, we'd find it was written in Dari and Pashto. But my question goes back to Miss um, Mozadik. The question about corruption, you made a good comment about how can you fight corruption when you've got a corrupt government in place. Um, I'm, not, I'm slightly familiar with Pashtunwali, but not enough to know um, whether in that code it talks about corruption. What can we do from an educational uh, perspective to get younger people to understand that there are values and standards that should be adhered to? I'm not talking about democracy or westernization, but how do we get corruption to be, um, to be understood as something that people don't want so that we're not in this situation in 30 years' time? where the government that's elected or not elected is a corrupt organisation. Thank you very much indeed. Let's take, it, uh, take a couple of other questions and then we will have the panel uh, uh, comment on uh, whatever they, they want to comment on. Yes, please. Yes, I'm Christopher Rowley, a student of international relations here. Um, <clears throat> if you think about the future of options, um, the future in Afg Afghanistan and the security uh, in northwest Pakistan. Um, is stabilization in northwest Pakistan a precondition, a consequence, or perhaps unrelated to stabilization in Afghanistan? My question goes to whoever wants to answer it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you, what is you know, this uh, difficult border? Uh, how to deal with the problems that are on both sides of the border? Yes, please, just behind you. My name is Fisnik Abrash, I'm a reporter, spent some time in Afghanistan. I've got a question for both Michael and you, Mr. Brahimi. It, which of the international bodies you think should be the agency which should facilitate in the negotiations which will come sooner or later, UN, OIC, or ICRC, in your view? Or a fourth one? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah, do I have, uh, yes, please, yeah, back there, yes, you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Edward, a student here. Um, I, uh, I was, thank you very much for all the comments. My question relates to the last point about accountability. Strikes me as a challenge for Afghanistan, but for any peacekeeping mission where there is high international involvement. And my question is, what is your advice or your take on how this can be changed? What strategies can be used to hold government accountable? Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, wrong, sorry, that's both local and international. Yeah, thank you. In front here. Yeah, Keith Raffin. Um, my question is an extension of one that's already been touched on, and that is how can we speak about the future of Afghanistan, or indeed of bringing stability to Afghanistan, without considering, or even mentioning, as the panel hasn't yet, the regional dimension? And uh, particularly, obviously, I'm referring to what in Washington, D.C. is referred to as the AFPAC strategy. Richard Holbrook is indeed the special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'm talking about the porous border. I'm talking about the state of Pakistan. I'm talking about the failing state of Pakistan and that whole regional dimension which impacts inevitably on the future of Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Uh, let's, let's see if, you know, if we have time now to answer all these questions. Uh, starting with you, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
actually uh, yeah, you, you responded you yeah. responded your question yourself by that polarized vision for Afghanistan. I think that sort of a division of understanding about Afghanistan for the Dutch Uruzgan, for the British Hillman, for for some others uh, Kunduz, for Germans, that is actually one part of the problem because. I understand the diversity of Afghanistan, but at the same time, it is one country. When, you, when for one country you are not able to have one strategy and you have for more than 40 strategies, then it's a chaos. I think you answered the, your question too. I want to come back to the issue of corruption. I feel very offended by, by saying that, uh, by, or by hearing that it has anything to do with values. I think if in, in, in UK, if for example you don't have this, the law enforcement, who wouldn't want to misuse? Who, who would want to pay taxes? You, would you? <laughs> no. There is, I think it, it has to be understood that if you don't have rule of law, that is the problem. That the, the corruption has started. But at the same time, let's not forget that from the billions of the, the dollars that came to Afghanistan, only 20% came to the government of Afghanistan. At best. At best. What happened to the rest? It, they have paid for the, 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 the most compliant houses of the international community, even the cooks. The cook has to have a, a, a degree from LSE. <laughs> yes, believe me, that, that is happening. So you need to understand. So you need to, okay. <laughs> so you need to understand that corruption is not only an Afghan phenomenon. On the issue of regional dimension, I want to say that it is an important issue, but if we know that, where are we actually situated? If we are situated in a situation that the, the world is abandoning us, then it's not their business to tell us how should we work with our neighbors. Then we would have to find some ways to of survival because you have a Pakistan where the territorial integrity is at question. That, that is, and, uh, and of course, Afghans would fight another world war, but they would not go to Pakistan. You have India on the other part. You have Iran, which, and then the China's evolving role. So I think the assumption has to be clarified to us within the Afghan communities and also within the Afghan government, rather than trying to tell them that how they should work. If the <coughs> assumption is that the international community is supporting us for the next 20 to 50 years, then we would actually go ahead with that and we will try <coughs> to be at peace with our, with our neighbors. Thank you very much. Tom, would you like to say something uh, about uh, Helmand or in, in well, the part of Afghanistan? Can I just answer a few comments very quickly and just say our support for reconciliation is not cheap, costless or quick. It will probably take anywhere between the next five and 50 years in gradual support, starting off with the military aspect, ending up with financial and DFID. This is not an exit strategy that is designed to save the British taxpayer millions. This is an exit strategy that's designed to come to the right answer for the people of Afghanistan. The second point is that an exit strategy, which has been a lot criticized this evening, I think one's got to look at what the alternative is. The alternative is a permanent garrison, and nobody wants that. So I feel very strongly that it's rather unfair to criticise us for looking for an exit strategy, as the alternative is that you start building us houses and teaching our children Pashto. The second thing, the third, if you'll forgive me, is uh, I hear often about deadlines. And I think it's worth looking very carefully at what our political leaders say, because you're right, they find it very difficult to argue for enduring commitments overseas when they are facing elections at home. What they have been very clear about, however, is that they see an enduring commitment to Afghanistan as a vital part of the national security, not just of our country, but actually of our allies and of the United States. The Obama surge, he has said, 
may come down if the situation is ready in 18 months. But there are so many conditions in that that it is only usable in an American election campaign. It's not usable as a negotiating strategy with anybody else. The whole point of these conditions is that they are conditions. The question about the regional dilemma, I think, is an extremely interesting one. And you're right, we didn't cover it. I deliberately didn't. The truth is that Afghanistan sits, as it does, with six countries on its borders and eight or nine, if you include the other players, Russia, Saudi, and India, who have a significant effect on its outcome. You're absolutely right as well to bring up the fact that this is not a solution that will come simply out of Kabul, but will come out of talks throughout the region. But Wajma, the commitment has been made by the international community formally through the United Nations Security Council declarations that the international community will guarantee the borders of Afghanistan, will guarantee the territorial integrity of Afghanistan. These agreements were committed to in 2001. In fact, the great irony is, of course, the British government committed to them in 1919. But they have continued to be repeated since. So while I agree with you that the regional dilemma and the problem of border infiltrations and cross-border activities is a serious one, the various conditions that have been given in order to offer those guarantees have been made. I will Thank let you others. very much. One quick word, or shall we go to Michael? Of the Michael, will you give me a chance? I prefer to read it. Yeah, yeah so that you can... Yes, yes, that's right. Very quickly, because we have very little time now. Sure, yeah. I think uh, about the issue around the corruption and accountability, I want to just make it very quick. So, yeah, I think if there is no accountability, if there is no rule of law, if there is... Accountability doesn't start from the international forces and international community. It will automatically affect the Afghan government as well. Like when there are attacks on civilians, there are always investigations. No one knows the results of those investigations. Like, I mean Afghans. Those results are not being made public to the Afghans. And also, there is no any, like if anyone violates the international human rights law or international humanitarian law, what happens to those perpetrators? There, there is not also any sort of question on or answer on that. So when the lack of accountability starts from the highest level, it automatically affects the lower level. And I'm just quickly giving you an example that when I was talking to some of the uh, officials in Afghanistan about the torture of the prisoners, they were saying, oh, we only beat them, we are not sexually abusing them as it happened in Abu Ghraib. Simply, we shouldn't set a bad example, but we should set good examples and we should teach the Afghan government and hold them accountable, remove all these human rights perpetrators from the power, don't bring more perpetrators to the power under any name. We simply, there is no definition for good human rights abuser and bad human rights abuser. Thank you very much. Michael? Only a 
I guess, a couple of minutes in the end, and I'm sort of try, I'd like to try and fuse the response to the questions that we got from the House and to yes. some of the things that were said, uh, which were said earlier. I think Tom is right in, in coming, bringing us back to this issue of the timetable, which has, uh, I think, uh, sown additional confusion over the past few months. It strikes me that the, the problems in Afghanistan are only likely to be solved over a, a rather longer period than people have been talking about for the Serbs. Afghanistan is not going to be sorted out in the next 18 months. Um, but I think that sometimes the, you know, both, the, both the media and people in you know, sitting, listening, often you know, pick on a figure without having the opportunity of working out what it means. And I think that, there's going to have to that a lot of that damage is going to have to be undone. I think that uh, there is a long-term commitment for work in Afghanistan. It's necessary that there should be, but I think that it's useful that um, the, the message has been put out that it's not going to be in exactly the same form as it is there at the moment, and that the, uh, the role of international combat troops is also not, not forever. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's uh, important to undo some of the, the confusion of the, the past few months uh, by talking about exploring the nature of the long-term commitment and what, what Afghanistan and internationally supported Afghanistan will look like beyond the period when uh, the international troops are drawn down. And I think that uh, exploration of that will also affect the way that some of the key Afghan actors uh, relate. Uh, relate to the process, in particular the, um, the Taliban, if there's any uh, prospect of Taliban coming into some kind of uh, reconciliation deal, um, it is, will be when they decide that um, this is uh, better than they're anything li likely to get uh, by staying on the battlefield. Uh, in other words, once they also realize that uh, the Karzai government, the government in Kabul is not about to topple when abandoned in 18 months. So damage has got to be undone there, explaining uh, what, uh, you know, what it means, um, that this long-term commitment. Uh, we've talked a lot about the you know, corruption, corruption, accountability, um, uh, impunity. Uh, my, understanding, uh, my understanding is that some of the people who are raising the alarm that uh, a political accommodation, a new process leading to a new settlement you know, is likely to be bad and is likely to simply entail you know, more bad people on the inside like it always happens. I mean, that is, that is a sentiment which is, um, uh, you know, which is driving some of the, uh, of the public debate. I certainly wouldn't be interested in um, exploring some of those options if that's what it meant. And I don't think, I think it is a misreading of the situation for people to assume that more bad people on the inside, particularly when we look at the, the, uh, what I was hint hinting at earlier on, that, yeah. They, the different sides of the conflict are, of course, working at cross purposes. Some of the, uh, the some of the mobilisation which is being conducted against the government is actually a justice-driven agenda. So the people who are mobilising, the people who are mobilising, you know, young Afghans to fight against corrupt government are not mobilising, and therefore we want more impunity. Quite the quite the opposite. Actually, I mean, they're uh, they are mobilising. Uh, against impunity and saying that you know what you know, what these people are doing at the moment is actually is, is empowering uh, those who we took up arms against in 1994. Um, I I think that any any deal which is worth pushing is something which will actually uh, offer redress of grievance 
which is attractive to many more Afghans than those who have actually taken up weapons. And I think that should be a touchstone for any process which is worth engaging and a challenge to those people who ultimately are given the task of taking it forward. But it also would have to be something which offers you know, a credible hope of actually delivering on any new round of promises for addressing those grievances. The last thing you want is, of course, you know, sign the deal. Of course, we want you know, another, another sustainable government and another... We did have... You know, justice was there in Bonn. It's just that it rolled out in a different way. Anyway, uh, uh, I guess I should you know, look, look specifically towards the questions. How does the, uh, how does the solution in Afghanistan relate to um, the, you know, the issue of insecurity and uh, Islamist mobilization along the frontier inside uh, Pakistan? They are interrelated. In terms of sequence, I, I, I suspect we will see progress in Afghanistan assisting in the stabilization of NWFP, but if you've got a game changer working in Pakistan, the positive spin-off could work the other way around. In the, you know, in the good case scenario, if you did get a, some kind of new deal in Afghanistan, in which the Afghan Taliban, and here I'm saying specifically the people who mobilized in 1994, uh, a political movement which grew out of Kandahar, uh, which had no significant role for the people in Waziristan, if you think ahead to the position in which they said there will be no further violence, there is no jihad in Afghanistan, you know, we tell the young people of Afghanistan to contribute to the building up of our country, that would have a massive positive impact on the stability of the northwest frontier and tribal areas inside Pakistan because it would remove the prime source of legitimacy for those people who have mobilized there who claim they are doing jihad in Afghanistan. So I think that there, there, is, you know, there is possibility for the positive, you know, positive spin-offs working either way. Actually, there's probably more chance of a game-changer in Afghanistan working backwards. And finally, on this, just to, you know, to end with the, the question that, um, that Huria quite, you know, quite rightly asked, who are you talking about reconciling? I mean, I don't think that any, the people who are talking about a, a reconciliation agenda, of course, are not talking about creating political space you know, for those who chop off heads and those, uh, those people who are terrorists. Um, this is just where I just point back to the point which I made at the start, that there are these gaps, these gaps between uh, ideal and realism, gaps in the perception that people have. It was, of course, ways in which the war and terror rolled out in Afghanistan helped drive the new round of conflict. The very notion that, you, in a sense, Huria, some of the way that you express this plays into the logic of the war on terror. It is by labelling Afghans who have a constituency in Afghanistan who are considered morally right by important parts of Afghan society who have their own constituency. The process of labelling those people as terrorists and trying to describe them as head choppers or finger choppers is what drives the conflict. I think that whoever takes this job of becoming the international mediator working along with the various Afghan constituencies in, try, in, in trying to get out of that you know, will be facing exactly that challenge. How to, how to reassure people like Huria that, uh, that those who are being brought into this process are not actually terrorists, they are Afghans like you, with also a shared commitment to trying to escape from the conflict and build stability in the country. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. Um, one, one, one last word. Uh, which one? Ha, ha, ha.
Mark, uh, are you busy? Yeah, uh, yeah the, the mediator, uh, I mean, the best mediator is the UN. If the UN is, is willing and capable of, uh, of, of doing it. But what I want to say is the following. You see, lately we have been, uh, you know, because things have gone wrong, uh, we are looking at a very, very dangerous and negative blame game. If you see the press in the West, if you hear the, the governments in the West, all the problems now come from, uh, from uh, Karzai. Uh, people for, uh, in particular, corruption. Karzai is corrupt. Karzai has created corruption. People forget how Karzai came to power. Karzai came to power because the, the Americans came to Afghanistan, because they went to Tehran, uh, uh, Tashkent, uh, Turkey, and brought back the people who were defeated by the Taliban, armed them, gave them money, and took them to Kabul. And they were there, the people who, who, who welcomed Karzai. He, he didn't bring them to Kabul. The people that you are called, calling now warlords and so on were not brought to Kabul, by, brought back to Kabul by Karzai. They were brought back by us, the international community. And in four years, and maybe until now, the weakest man in Kabul is Karzai, or was Karzai. So, you know, this blame game is, 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 is not very healthy. The other thing is, you are absolutely right when you speak about the importance and necessity of the rule of law. I think the international community is definitely guilty of having neglected help to create uh, or improve, you know, the 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 the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the rule of law uh, situation. We have preferred to spend money on organizing elections. As you said, these elections have delegitimized, not legitimized, uh, uh, democracy and the rulers of Afghanistan. So now, I think people are starting to realize that we didn't do very well. And I think that we should, we should not fear criticizing what we have done until now and try to do something else. Uh, I think as Michael has said, you know, we are not talking about agents of ISI. There are agents of ISI as there are agents of other countries around. Uh, we are not talking about that. We are talking about the people of Afghanistan trying to come together and trying to create a better dispensation than the, that, that exists now. And the international community uh, can help the Afghans do that. And I think there are enough Afghans who are aware of that necessity of, uh, of, of bringing the people together. Uh, that can be done if we have one policy, one strategy, that is not an exit strategy, but a strategy to help the people of Afghanistan stand on, on their own to food. Uh, we could have gone on for, uh, you have another question? Or? Just at the end. Ah, yes, sure. Uh, you know, you can continue this discussion on Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Which room is it? Uh, do we know? In LSE somewhere. With uh, uh, with uh, uh, Ashraf Ghani, who will be delivering uh, a lecture here, 
And as you know, Ashraf Ghani is very articulate and uh, will be able to answer much more questions than we have been able to. Thank you all very, very much for your attention.